leaving your comfort zone. And sometimes coming up here to give a Dharma talk very much feels like leaving my comfort zone. Um, And tonight I wanted to kind of weave some ideas uh, that we've been opening out to here on the retreat and kind of see what gets created with this talk this evening. I want to draw on a number of uh, quotes and ideas from uh, Suzuki Roshi uh, from the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind that some of you might be aware of. And Suzuki Roshi is um, or was a respected Zen master who lived in Japan and came to America in uh, 1959 and he made his home in San Francisco and in San Francisco uh, he developed uh, some very important Zen centers uh, uh, called San Francisco Zen Center and then there were some offshoots of that as well. He died in 1971 and he was considered really one of the most influential Zen masters of our time. So I want to draw a little bit on him tonight as we weave some of these ideas together. I want to begin with one of my favorite poems from the great uh, Sufi poet Rumi. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And I want to talk about, well, I want to problem is that, you know, I'm talking, but I want to portray for us tonight this field, this field that is out beyond our ideas, all of our ideas, all of our views, all of our positions about things, all the ways that we create some kind of a fixed idea about the way things are, about the way I am, the way you are, the way things are, and how this gives rise to our suffering. And when we can come out of these views, these identifications that we've been talking about, when we can come out of those, when we can let go and open up to something else, we enter into something that is, we might say, even unspeakable, the field that Ruby was pointing to. Our practice certainly is about becoming very simple and natural in ourselves, to really relax, <laughs> to be relaxed. You know, we have all these practices and these forms and these teachings and you know, bodies of traditions and lineages and religions and, you know, but it's all in the service of finding a way 
to be relaxed, <laughs> to, to feel at ease in ourselves. But oftentimes, all of these different bodies of information, information in these models and structures and frameworks, they can sometimes even create more confusion or more stress, more anxiety for us. So sometimes we really do need to put it all down. Just put it all down and find that which is the very most natural inside of us. A retreat I was teaching last month, I think, in California, I was having an interview with a yogi. He came to me and he said, about the, what happened the night before. He said, I was in so much pain and exhaustion from the day. I wanted to go sit on a bench after the talk with a cup of tea. He said, there was a time when I wouldn't do that. But the truth is, I've had so many wonderful meditations sitting on benches. And I think that there's actually something revealed there. You know, because we somehow, and how, so many times, People have said on this retreat, oh, I've had this insight, but it wasn't during the sitting. <laughs> the insight came when I was out, you know, sitting under the tree or you know, in my room. And it's interesting that people have been pointing that out. And I wonder if something doesn't happen when we get more relaxed. You know, somehow somebody was talking about, I think this morning too, how coming into the meditation hall and sitting in the, 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 the meditation posture started to, well, she noticed that it was bringing up this tension, this anxiety, just by sitting in the meditation posture. But then when she went out, there was something that relaxed, something that opened. And I think she was talking about, you know, what about just going and sitting under a tree? No. What about that? What, what, what happens there? What's the difference there? And it's probably true that many of us have had many wonderful meditations sitting under a tree. But we don't call it meditation for some reason because we're not sitting cross-legged, you know, with our back upright, with eyes closed, hands crossed, you know. Somehow that doesn't get the uh, label meditation. But yet something relaxes. Something opens up. I wonder if at that time we aren't more in a natural state of being. Sometimes you'll notice too that you'll be, you know, meditating, 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 and then, you know, the thought comes, I can't wait for the bell, I can't wait for the bell. And then the bell rings and it's, ah. All the tension drops away, the holding drops away. Feel really good and at ease in yourself. And sometimes when I'm sitting up here, I think, I should ring the bell early. (laughs) And then ask people to sit for another five minutes or so afterwards, just to come into a little bit more relaxation. So sometimes these forms themselves, the forms, the practices, the instructions, the teachings, the the tradition (laughs) can create more rigidity and more 
contraction for us in a very odd way because they're actually moving us, pointing to that which is more natural, that which is more open, but we can get caught in it. This is from uh, Suzuki Roshi. The purpose of studying Buddhism is not to study Buddhism, but to study ourselves. It is impossible to study ourselves without some teaching. If you want to know what water is, you need science, and the scientist needs a laboratory. In the laboratory, there are various ways in which to study what water is. Thus, it is possible to know what kind of elements water has, the various forms it takes, and its nature. But it's really impossible, thereby, to know water itself. It is the same thing with us. We need some kind of teaching, but just by studying the teaching alone, it is impossible to know what I in myself am. Through the teaching, we may understand something about our human nature, but the teaching is not we ourselves. It is some explanation of ourselves. So if you are attached to the teaching or to the teacher, that is a big mistake. The moment you meet a teacher, you should leave the teacher and you should be independent. You need a teacher so that you can become independent of the teacher. If you are not attached to him or her, the teacher will show you the way to yourself. You have a teacher for yourself, not for the teacher. So you have a practice for yourself, not for the practice. So when we, we sometimes we have to sort out, is the practice, if the form, the rituals, or whatever it is that we're taking on, is it, is it feeling like a hindrance? Is there some way that I'm getting caught up in the form itself and it's not really showing me who I am. It's not really reflecting enough about who I am. So some relaxation needs to happen. Some opening out needs to happen. Something that all of us can become sensitive to at any given time. What it is that we need. How we need to move. How we need to experience. When we're, when we're getting tight and contracted. When we need to let go and open out. So even on this retreat, we have offered both ends of the spectrum of the practices here. You know, we started out being much more, uh, having much more attention on breath and one-pointed attention and bringing in more uh, focus and concentration in our practice. This was because when we come into a retreat, we're actually pretty wide open. We're receiving lots of sense impressions, lots of thoughts, lots of experience events are happening. There's a way that we're carrying all that and that the mind needs some support to come into more of a, a single pointed experience. But that isn't the place that we need to abide all the time. How is that more focused or concentrated uh, uh, mind in service of us to, again, find that which is most natural, that which is most at ease. So then the encouragement to begin to let go and open back out, to see what can be t- 
touched, what can be experienced when the mind is more open, when the heart is more open. So that we're not really resting, we're not really landing or fixing in any particular point. But that perhaps there's enough awareness in the mind that we can notice the changing fluidity of experience. So we see that actually there isn't any single point. There isn't any single point. That's just another concept. That all of experience in every moment, every instant, is taking on a different manifestation, a different shape, a different form. And all of these phenomena are interacting, dependent on each other, moving, shifting, changing, influencing (coughs) each other, moment after moment, that gives some expression of creation. This moment, and then the next moment, and the next moment. There's a dynamic quality that's occurring all the time. I want to tell you about a um, film that I saw about uh, two months ago. And uh, this is a documentary I saw it in uh, around San Francisco, a documentary on a British sculptor named Andy Goldsworthy. And that name may ring a bell for some of you because this man is very unique. <laughs> in the way that he expresses his understanding of nature and his deep, really deep understanding of the way things are. And this is a documentary that has recently been made, uh, and I'm hoping that it will be widely available uh, soon. Um, it It is called Rivers and Tides. And this film came to this one theater for it was just supposed to be on for a week but it got it was so popular so many people came to see it it was it was sold out every night that they just decided to keep it on for two months and every night it was sold out because the word got around and it was so inspiring it was just a documentary on this man's work and his uh, way of um relating to life. And what Andy Goldsworthy does, for those of you who aren't familiar, he takes um, nature, things from nature, leaves, branches, rocks, twigs, flowers, and he just goes around and he just takes whatever is available, whatever he can find, and then he creates, creates these sculptures in nature, outside, out, out wherever he is. He's been all over the world creating his sculptures in the, the North Pole and in Japan and, and everywhere creating his sculptures. And he um, creates them not for any lasting existence. He knows that as he puts them together they're going to fall apart. But that's part of the art, that's part of the expression. So, for example, in this documentary, there was a scene where he was he was by a by the sea, 
and he wanted to build a rock structure out of the rocks that were around and he, he, he builds these cones, cones so that the rocks somehow uh, are in, uh, fixed in a way that they hold up in a cone shape so wider at the bottom and then narrow at top and he was doing this right on the beach while the tide was out knowing that the tide would be coming in but part of the art was to have the cone finished in time so that when the tide came in he would see the cone disappear underneath the water and then would come back later to see the cone reappear as the water went back out. So, so he's very interested in the appearing and disappearing nature of things. And so in the scene he was, he was kind of racing a little bit against time because he wanted to get it done before the tide came in. And he would start to build, but it, he was fixing it and doing it in such a way that at some point, I think it got to be about uh, two feet high, and then the whole thing crumbled. And it was interesting to watch his face, because of course in the moment it was like, ah, oh, darn. Which was really kind of funny, because the whole thing's going to collapse anyhow at some point, because the water's going to come in and then start to break it up and take it down and then, you know, and we don't know how long that, was actually, that would actually take, but eventually the water would take it, the sea would take it. And so then he started building it up again. And then this old farmer was walking by and he saw Andy Goldsworthy and one assistant who was helping him cut the rocks and get it set up. And just kind of, they had, in the film, they had this guy kind of looking at him wondering what he was doing, why he was building this, this rock cone on the sandy beach when the tide was going to come in and just wash the thing away. It's like, so this, this farmer just had the most perplexed look on his face. And, and finally, Andy Goldsworthy went over to him and they had a little chat and said, uh, you know, how you doing? And then this farmer said, well, what, are you, what are you actually doing? You know, you know the, the sea is going to come in and take it away. And Andy just looked at him and said, I know. You know, it was like, I'm sure the farmer thought he was absolutely nuts. And so then he goes back and he finally finishes up the cone. And uh, the next, and the be- it was beautifully filmed. And then later, the next scene, you see the sea starting to come in and slowly, slowly, slowly covering over the cone until it disappears. Just the sea no cone at all. And then of course later seeing the sea go back out and it was there, still there. But he has many, many cones all over that are just sort of waiting for the weather, waiting for material, waiting for uh, the, the, the uh, elements just to destroy it so it'll fall apart. So absolutely no investment in the decaying, in the dis- in the, in the falling apart. No investment of having any lasting existence or lasting permanency to his art. But it's actually for the expression of nature, of the arising, of the staying for some time and the falling apart. This is from Andy Goldsworthy. He says, 
I enjoy the freedom of just using my hands and found tools, a sharp stone, the quill of a feather, thorns. I take the opportunities each, each day offers. If it's snowing, I work with snow. At leaf fall, it will be with the leaves. A blown over tree becomes a source of twigs, twigs and branches. I stop at a place or pick up a material because I feel that there is something to be discovered. Here is where I can learn. Here is where I can learn. In another scene, there was a scene of Andy Goldsworthy just walking around the town where he lives in Scotland. And he's just picking dandelions and putting them in a basket. And he's just walking down the road saying hello to people and just picking the dandelions and putting them in a basket. I wondered and while I was seeing it, that people must think he's a little strange. <laughs> you know, because a lot of other people are out working and he's walking around picking dandelions. And so then the, the, the camera follows him out to the river and he finds a crevice, a hole in a rock, lots of rocks around the river, and he finds a hole. And he put the dandelion in the hole in such a way that as you move a bit away from the rock, there's all this gray rock and kind of the, the gray-blue water and this blast of yellow, the yellow circle in this rock. Just, a, just this bright dandelion yellow just jumping out from the rock. And then this uh, waiting, what's going to happen? It's not just for the dandelions to be in the rock. Something else, it's, just, it's alive. It's not, it's not for the permanency of having those dandelions in the rock. So then the waiting, and then the tide comes in, the, the river tide comes in and starts to fill, water fills in the rock, and then the dandelions start to bounce and float. And then enough water comes in that the dandelions start to float over the hole of the rock, and the, the river is coming up, and then the dandelions just start flowing one by one down the stream of the tide. And so there's this beautiful spiral swirl in the river of these bright yellow dandelions, all in a line, just one by one. They're coming out of the rock, just swirling down the river and going down the river until they disappear. So a whole sense of a beginning Hmm, of course, but where is the beginning? You know, the beginning for Andy Goldsworthy might have been when he picked the dandelions, but the dandelions were already there. There was a, there was a beginning for the dandelions, so it all started way before. Then he picks the dandelions, takes them to the place he's going to do his work, and then the river coming in and taking the dandelions down the river until they disappear. So a sense of that truth of how things are all the time, that there isn't any permanency in the nature of things. This beautiful expression of this truth. He says, I want to get under the surface, 
When I work with a leaf, a rock, a stick, it is not just that material in itself. It is an opening into the processes of life within and around it. (coughs) When I leave it, these processes continue. So there's no ending, really. Or we can say there's no beginning, really. Some continuum of experience. He says, looking, touching, material, place, and form are all inseparable from the resulting work. It's difficult to say where one stops and another begins. The energy and space around a material are are as important as the energy and space within. The weather, rain, sun, snow, hail, mist, calm, is that external space made visible. When I touch a rock, I am touching and working the space around it. It is not independent of its surroundings, and the way it sits tells how it came to be there. The way it sits tells about the way it came to be there. So it's like everything has some information in it. Everything has some kind of expression in it. It's like waiting, waiting for somebody to come along and to notice, to help it wake up to help it give expression. Everything is alive. Everything is dynamic. Including every aspect of our own being. It's not that the nature is out there and there's this solid sense of myself here. But certainly you've had a chance to look and see, yes, there's so much aliveness within ourselves. I mean, moment to moment to moment. From the time you came here last Saturday, (laughs) I'm sure it can feel for some of you like lifetimes of experiences. Every day, how different, how how many moods you've been through, how many mind states, how many how many different insights and experiences, and, and how the days have changed and. All that's occurred over these seven days together. It's so dynamic. Thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations. All changing moment to moment to moment. And in that, there's no fixed point. All those points together make up some kind of form some kind of formation. But when we look carefully, we see that there, there's, where is the fixed point? Where can we say, well, this is it. This is it now. This is either who I am or, or this is what this retreat was about or this is what this day was about. Or It's like, where can we fix ourselves? Where can we fix experience? in this incredible, dynamic, vital, awake expression of existence that is occurring in every moment. But the problem is that the mind, the mind tries to fix 
And in fact, we might say that is kind of the function of our intellect, is to create, to, to draw boundaries around certain events, certain experiences, and say, yes, that's that. You know, like drawing a boundary around who's sitting here right now. We call this Sharda. You know? But when we go a little bit deeper, I mean, what and who is Sharda? We may have some ideas, some projections, some expectations, some view, but is that Sharda? So we begin to uncover some of our ideas, some of our concepts about how we're holding things, how we're seeing things, how we're fixing things in time. This is from one of my teachers, uh, Alma, A.H. Almas, who's uh, head of the Ridwan School. It's uh, very popular where I live now, Diamond Heart. He says, it is possible to see that everything that happens is a creativity, is the process of life itself moving, changing, transforming. Suffering occurs from taking a position. A position is rigid and goes against life's movement and change. So suffering occurs when we take a position, when we get caught in some kind of fixed idea about things. And we will suffer again and again when we don't understand that dynamic, vital, moving quality of who we are, what this life is. I was in Switzerland a number of years ago and uh, downtown in Bern visiting some friends and downtown um, they don't call it you don't call it downtown here <laughs> we call it downtown <laughs> in the center of the village <laughs> the center of the town I'm not sure what you call it <laughs> the town center maybe the high got it <laughs> in the town center um, there was an old church with a, I mean old, <laughs> old in Europe, an old church with an old church tower. And on the church tower was a very, very large clock, probably as large as that whole wall there. And this clock wasn't just your normal clock, but this was a clock that whenever it struck a certain hour, there were all kinds of little figures that would come out and do little dances and sing songs and a really, really beautiful expression of, of art, creativity. And my friend pointed out to me how that behind the clock were all these gears that were all interconnected, you know, five or six gears, big old wooden gears that were all winding around, grinding around and all interlocking. And so that every gear was dependent on every other gear to make the whole thing turn and to make these figures come out of their little boxes and do all little dances and then go back in. All these, there's just this winding of these gears. And he pointed out that if 
a stone dropped into one of the little crevices, the whole thing would stop. Because that everything is, is all dependent on each other to keep moving, to keep fluid. And one little, one thing that's fixed, one thing that's solid stops the whole thing. It can't move. And it's actually the same thing about this existence. If there was one thing that was solid in this universe in which we live, the whole thing would stop. There wouldn't be able to be any more movement because everything is dependent on everything else for its expression, for its life. And the only thing that's solid or gives us a sense of solidity in this universe is a thought, is a fixed idea, a fixed position, is an idea that there's something solid. Because the truth is, even that thought is moving, is changing, is coming and going. And so this is a reflection for us into this, the, in the codependent or the interdependent nature of all things. How everything is dependent on everything else for its existence. I only exist because of the air, because of the sun, because of the food, because of the grass. I can only give teachings because you are here. <coughs> I could give teachings if you weren't here, but it might be a little bit silly. Some people do that. They sit up and they talk to themselves. But somehow the teachings are much more potent. There's sometimes much more of a dynamic, alive energy happening here because you're here and I'm here. And we have a tradition, we have a lineage of a whole hundreds and hundreds of years brought together right here in this moment of time that will continue after we leave, a process that will continue after we leave. So as we reflect on this, we start to get a sense of our, of who we are. That there isn't this, you know, there's a sense that, yes, there's two, there's me and there's you, and there's, there's always two when we're in relationship, there's two happening. But the two is happening in a dynamic relationship. We're not two in isolation. We're two that are affecting each other constantly, as we were talking today, this afternoon. Someone said, yes, by that person sitting in front of me, I can see myself so much more clearly. By that person sitting in front of me, my experience comes alive much more than it does when I'm just sitting by myself sometimes. So there's a way that that interaction that happens, which is happening all the time, interacting, interacting, this is what reveals ourselves to ourselves. We see ourselves as we move, as we interact, as we go through the day. We come alive. 
through our interaction. So it seems like two, it appears like two, like there's separation, there's isolation. But we are dependently arising together, we are dependently existing together. We're not fixed, we're not static, but shifting, fluid, dynamic. This is Suzuki Roshi again from his, his essay. He says, Dogen said, to study Buddhism is to study ourselves. To study ourselves is to forget ourselves. That's the end of the quote. When you become attached to a temporal expression of your true nature, it is necessary to talk about Buddhism or else you will think the temporal expression is it. But this particular expression of it is not it, and yet at the same time, it is it. This is very Zen, so you have to listen carefully. (laughs) (laughs) For a while, this is it. For the smallest particle of time, this is it. But it is not always so. For the very next instant, it is not so. Thus, this is not it. So for this moment in time, this is what we've got. This is it. But we can't fix it. We can't say this is all there is because in the next moment of time, it's going to change. It's going to be different. So for the smallest particle of time, this is it. This is it. And he says, so that you will realize this fact, it is necessary to study Buddhism. (laughs) But the purpose of studying Buddhism is to study ourselves and to forget ourselves. Forgetting ourselves means understanding that we are not isolated. We are not separate. That's what it means to forget ourselves. When we forget ourselves, we actually are the true activity of the big existence or reality itself. When we realize this fact, there is no problem whatsoever in this world and we can enjoy our life without feeling any difficulties. The purpose of our practice is to be aware of this fact. To be aware of this fact. So we're getting out of the ideas of how to be, you know, these fixed ideas we have about ourselves, about our practice, about who we should be and how we are in the world, and getting out of ideas of right and wrong, perhaps being able to meet in the field where that sense of me and you or each, even each other no longer means anything. But it's so hard. It's so hard because we are so deeply conditioned to believe in this 
sense of two, in this sense of isolation, in this sense of separation. It's so deeply conditioned in this view. But it is only a view. It is only a thought. It is only an idea. The true reality is that there is no separation. That in every moment, that which we take to be true changes. Everything is in transiency. Everything is interconnected. We might say that that gives us a sense of fullness because in this moment, this moment is full of everything that's occurring right now. So yes, it's full, it's rich, it's alive. But we can turn that around and on the other side of the same coin is emptiness. And emptiness means that we can't say anything is fixed, is solid, has its own self-existence. We can't say, yeah, this is it, it's here. It's, it's empty of that permanency. It's empty of that self-existence. It's empty of any kind of, of, of lasting uh, value. So emptiness and fullness, on the same, it's the same coin. It doesn't matter how you want to look at it. We can look at it and say, yeah, everything's full. Or we can say, no, everything's empty, empty of any, anything I can grab onto, anything I can take for myself and own for myself and possess for myself. It's empty. You can't hold on to it. It's changing. So trying to get out of our fixation. Fixation is another word for ego, that sense of being isolated and separate. Fixation, ego, another word is confusion. Another word for ego is confusion because we don't see. We don't see clearly. We don't, we don't know how things really are and we don't live in accord with the truth. So we're confused. So confusion, fixation. <coughs> this fixation is a kind of restricted energy. It, it holds us, kind of holds us into these small and narrow views of ourselves. This more egoic position. It's a, it's a, it's a constricting, contracting energy. But when we look carefully, we see that actually. There's nothing constricted. Things are moving for us. When we get caught in those fixations, those views that limit us, that make us small, it actually blocks our heart, blocks that beautiful expression of our being that comes out through compassion and through love and care and generosity. And when, we're, when we can open out and we can relax and we feel more at ease and more natural, that's what gets expressed, is the compassion, the love. 
just want to tell you about one experience that I had a few years ago that um, I think fits. We'll see how it fits. Because it's an experience that I had that really showed me that some freedom has happened within myself. Because I was in a very, very difficult situation and the way that I responded was very, very surprising. And some of you may have heard the story, but uh, I was a couple of years ago when I was in India and I um, had been going to India for about uh, 15 years every winter. Uh, I was teaching there uh, every winter uh, and I was getting quite used to being in India. It was informing me and loosening me up and helping me uh, understand myself a lot more by encountering all the very difficult things that one encounters there in India. And this particular time, um, I was in the south of India with a friend who wanted me to experience some of real, real India, kind of the back life village India, um, instead of just going where the travelers were going and, um, you know, sort of the, the, the regular beaten path. And so I went to a, a place outside of Madras with her, and we were staying with an Indian woman doctor in her 30s, Sacha. And Sacha worked at the local hospital. She was uh, a neonatal doctor, working with babies that were uh, born with difficulties and helping to keep these babies alive. And so she was in her 30s and she was very proud of the work she was doing and she wanted uh, my friend Carol and I to go to the hospital to see the work she was doing. Well, I knew that um, this was trouble. I could feel a lot of the resistance arising. I really avoided Indian hospitals as much as I possibly could because they're uh, very difficult places to be and yet I really wanted to support her and see the work she was doing at the hospital. So I kind of held, kind of took a deep breath and said I would go and we walked to the hospital at twilight, just getting dark and as we got to the hospital um, outside the hospital grounds, for those of you who have been there probably know that everywhere, pretty much everywhere, there are people who are setting up camp, who are cooking food, who are, have tents and are living outside. So particularly outside the hospital, uh, their people, family members were setting up uh, their tents for the night right outside on the hospital grass uh, to be there for the people who, their, their family members who are in the hospital. So there were all the fires burning and the smoke and, you know, lots of people all around so they've been walking in the hospital. And walking into the hospital, and it was all kind of, I remember, all open air. There was no real windows, uh, but just the air coming in through the windows. So it was a very open, very big open room, and lots of people uh, sitting on beds, chatting together. Very, very open. Just lots of people around. And we walked upstairs to the unit where this uh, where Sasha was working. And um, it was the only area that was all behind uh, glass. She had it built up, a small area, about half the size of this room, 
just all, all uh, protected so that uh, you keep it somewhat uh, uh, protected inside the unit. And we walked in and inside there were about uh, uh, 10 handmade little uh, cabinets of plexiglass and wooden uh, cart, a little like wooden cart with uh, the babies, newborn babies in these little units with little tubes kind of coming in and very uh, uh, strong lights so to keep them warm. And it was all very kind of higgly piggly. There, there it was all kind of handmade and and you know tape over the side of the plexiglass, kind of holding the tubes in. And it was all kind of very very rough. But there were all these newborn babies who were really on their really questionable whether they would live or not. And it, they were all just lying there just all alone in the little carts in this room. And in the room off to the side were about six or seven young mothers, maybe in their teenage years, who had no idea what was going on. And it was very, very intense <laughs> for me. Um, it was kind of hot outside and not there wasn't any air in the room. And seeing these babies that were probably dying and the very, very rough conditions that really weren't that supportive for the babies. And Satya started telling me about how difficult it was to get medical supplies and how she had to actually use her own money to, you know, go out and call for certain medicines and certain supplies and uh, people wouldn't listen to her. She started telling me how actually the reason she wasn't getting support for the uh, babies was because mostly that people didn't really care that much whether these babies lived or not because they were sick and there were so many people anyhow that it didn't matter so much whether these babies lived. And then she was saying that if the babies did die then the women, the girls who were in the other room, she said they probably would be thrown out of the family's home that they were living in because it's a disgrace to give birth to a baby that's not healthy and dies. And so they would get thrown out on the street. Well, I was taking in all this information, <laughs> and it was hot, and I was seeing the babies, and I was really starting to um, feel very dizzy and very uh, uh, losing my capacity to be able to stay in there. And as Caroline and Sasha were kind of going around and looking at all the different babies, I just started to lose it. I just wasn't able to keep my strength. And so I decided that I had to leave. And I went out and I sat in the room that had a fan. And I sat down and I just started to feel, feel all this really deep, deep sorrow and deep sadness for just all the suffering the suffering of these babies, the suffering of the mothers, the suffering, all that I was seeing around, and I just fell into this. And what happened is that as I was falling into it, I just felt the arising of all this incredible compassion, mostly for myself as well as for the others, but for myself too, that I was in such a decrepit, 
position within myself that I too was falling apart. And in that there was all this compassion. And the reason that it was so surprising (coughs) is because usually I would have such a strong judgment of myself that I wasn't able to be stronger, that I didn't have the capacity to walk around and see all the babies, that I couldn't just walk around and wish all the babies loving kindness and and just transmit my spiritual energy to these babies so that they would get well. And I would have a tremendous judgment of myself that I couldn't do that. And I was sitting there in that office feeling really uh, falling apart. And because I didn't have any judgment of myself, because I really was allowing that whole experience to occur with complete openness and complete acceptance, what arose was incredible compassion and probably more compassion than I ever remember experiencing. And as I say, that compassion turning towards myself as I sat there and also the ability to turn it out towards the mothers and towards the babies, towards Sasha, towards the whole situation, towards Mother India. And it was such an important learning for me, such an important experience because I let go of my view. I let go of my own fixed idea about how I should be or what was actually going to give rise to the compassion. My idea, my fixed idea, was that what was going to give rise to the compassion was going to be if I could stay upright and walk around to all the different babies and express some kind of compassion to these babies. And that wasn't what happened at all. It was completely different than I imagined it could be. And in that unknowing, in that letting go, in that acceptance of just what was, just what was occurring, came that expression of that beautiful quality of compassion. And so sometimes we don't know what what it's going to take, what it's going to take. Sometimes we may just surprise ourselves. We may just respond or react in a way that we didn't even expect, completely different than what we imagined, and then something shows up for us, some quality, some expression, some way of being that then reveals back to us, oh yeah, it wasn't the way I thought it was going to be. It isn't the way it seems. It's not the way it appears. So as much as we can, we hold our views, we hold our ideas, we hold our beliefs lightly, hold on to them lightly, because then we will be surprised. We will be very surprised, because things are not as they seem. And as one sage said, things are not as they seem, nor are they otherwise. (laughs) 
out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Let's sit together for a minute. 